0: Hey, everyone, and welcome to our second episode of the What Really Happened interview series. What Really Happened is produced by Dwayne The Rock Johnson, Danny Garcia, Brian Gewirtz, Seven Bucks Productions, and Cadence 13. Today, we're talking to someone that former Defense Secretary Robert Gates said was, quote, perhaps the finest warrior and leader of men in combat I've ever met. So, General Stanley McChrystal, with the general, I'm hoping you hear a conversation You wouldn't normally expect. During his 35 years in the army, he was at one point in command of all U.S. forces in Afghanistan. Despite Newsweek once calling him the most secretive force in the U.S. military, I talked to him about a range of topics. Nightmares he's been having, the value of uh, being able to tell good jokes, the importance of storytelling, and how to convince people on your perspective. While listening, just remember In Iraq, he personally directed special operations where he was integral in the capture of Saddam Hussein. His forces were responsible for the death of Abu Musab al-Zarqawi, leader of al-Qaeda in Iraq. You may also recall General McChrystal was the subject of a controversial article by Rolling Stone called The Runaway General. The article reported remarks by McChrystal's staff that were critical and scornful of the White House staff and other civilian officials, President Obama called him into his office and McChrystal resigned. And then Brad Pitt played him in that Netflix movie. Last year, he came out with a book called Leaders, Myth and Reality, which he wrote with Jeff Eggers and Jay Mangone. And although not credited on the cover, there's actually three other people who helped them write the book, which I'll speak to him about. There are some other controversies and highlights of his career, but those stories and many others have been told over and over again. So I wanted to speak with the general about very human things, topics that sometimes are overlooked when people interview General Stanley McChrystal. So with that in mind, here is our conversation. Hi, this is Stan McChrystal. Hey, General McChrystal, this is Andrew Jenks calling from the podcast. How are you? Andrew, thanks for calling. I appreciate it. Oh, please. Thank you. Um, Everything good on your end? Yeah, life is really good, but it's been a great year so far. So I got no complaints. Wow, great year. Okay, well, what's General McChrystal's greatest <laughs> thing of the year?
1: Yeah, well, the be- best thing in my life is my two granddaughters live next door to me. They're age four and two. Oh, so that's, of life.
0: that's pretty cute. Okay, okay. My company has grown up to 100 people. So from two people eight
1: years ago, oh, hundred wow. and then we released this new book, which
0: leaders, which is a lot of fun. And from what I understand, you worked with three younger kind of research, or you can tell me assistants on it as well. What was it like to be working with younger people in that capacity? They would give a young person's perspective. Mm. And that
1: was very interesting because for one thing, they were harder on leaders than I was. Hmm. They were more critical. And, you know, I would, I guess that's because, you know, I've, I've been through a lot, made a lot of mistakes. So maybe I'm more forgiving of mistakes, hmm. but it was interesting to see that the angle they kind of
0: came at it from. Just curious. Was there any yeah. leader in particular that, that you recall them sort of, I, I know like there's a lot of talk and I'm very defensive of him uh, when people bring up Churchill and, and they kind of forget that he was alive and a leader during a, a different time. And, and, Um, I'm a a big defender of his. Was there any historical figures that you recall?
1: The two that they were hardest on that we probably differed was Walt Disney and then Robert E. Lee.
0: I see. And
1: Robert E. Lee, you know, the Charlottesville stuff, because I had grown up on the heroic idea, and then they'd grown up more recently. But then the the Walt Disney part was interesting because I'd also grown up in an era when Walt Disney, Uncle Walt, was so well-known. Um, and they, as they studied him, they look at his
0: management failings and whatnot. So they came at it much more critically. It was interesting. That's so interesting. So, you know, it's in my experiences, I've been very lucky to, uh, interview and speak with, and sometimes even get to know, uh, leaders in, in very different capacities, uh, professional athletes, president of the United States, uh, CEOs to to the people that we don't necessarily think of as leaders, but one consistency that I've found is they instinctively are curious and listen very well. And I can't the number of times I've I've been speaking with someone who I admire and I'm asking them questions, and then inevitably find myself answering questions of theirs happens a lot. And you almost just pretty much said that with what you were taking away from the three younger people that that you were working with, has there been something you've taken away from meeting different high-profile, quote-unquote, you know, kind of important people and have noticed any any kind of um, similarity as it pertains to listening?
1: Yeah, no, that's a great one. I I guess um, they really listen. If you ever, you've been in conversation with somebody and they'll ask you a bunch of questions and then Either they're looking over your shoulder or their eyes are sort of glazed over when you're, you're responding. <laughs> and you realize that it was more of a gesture than mm-hmm. a, an interrogative. On the other hand, I once had lunch with, uh, at, with a group of people with Bill Gates. Mm-hmm. And he's a different kind of guy. But I felt like he hooked up a cable to my brain and tried to suck everything out. Wow. And as soon as he had gotten it, he was like, okay, got it, thanks. But it, but it was amazing. He, he asked probing questions. He, he listened intently. And the people like that that I'm around that are really curious, it's the same thing you've experienced. Now, that doesn't make them, you know, I found a lot of people who are effective leaders who don't listen.
0: <laughs>
1: but it doesn't, yeah, but it doesn't make them good people.
0: I see. Right, right. Speaking, you were talking about Walt Disney, your childhood and correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I as I recall in, in, your, in your book, and you've talked about it elsewhere, at, at 10 years old, your father leaves for Vietnam. Is that, is that right? That's correct. Now, what you know, something that, that we, we talk about a lot on this show, and I think it's a, something that society at large has discussed, is this, this balance of uh, what, what makes us who we are, a combination of genetics, uh, the environment we grow up in i I don't mean to play therapist here but what do you what impact other than uh the impact it may have had on on what you wanted to do with your life in terms of going into the military what impact did it have for you as a young guy my father traveled a lot when I was a kid I think it had a lot of made a difference in my life what what impact did that have on on you as a young boy
1: yeah I think uh I'm a great believer that your experiences and the people who are examples in front of you, whether they're intentional examples or not, have the biggest impact on you. My father was a very quiet guy. He was very self-effacing, but he was a very successful soldier. So on the one hand, I I was never in combat with him, but I knew about it. I read about it. I saw the, the awards and the whatnot he got for that. So I started with the assumption that he was a very good combat soldier, like the kind you see in the movies. But at the same time, I saw this guy who was a very courteous gentleman and he was not a braggadocious person or,
0: Mm.
1: or uh, pushy. And so those two things sort of connected for me as you start to say, okay, how do you, what's the right way to conduct yourself? Mm. Um, And you start to. I think a lot of people want to be their father. I certainly did until the day he died. I think that has a big impact.
0: And do you recall what it was like when he was gone, and you're with your siblings and uh, your mother? What was that? If you could, if you if you wouldn't mind speaking a little bit to what that what that was like as a family? Because it's in a lot of ways we think of, uh, you know, you are. Hey, listen. You're, you're General Stanley McChrystal. I mean, you are one of the world's, you know, leading thinkers. Yet, you, like so many other uh, of us, were sitting there, maybe at a dinner table, ten years old, with a, with a dad who was gone and and a mom trying to trying to hold down the house. Uh, if I have it right.
1: Well, that's exactly right. And just to put it in perspective, there were six kids, and uh, my mom and my dad. He we went in the summer of '65. Is the first thing i remember vietnam war was really just ramping up at that particular point i didn't have a huge appreciation for for that particular war but i'd watched a lot of war movies and also i was able to, to extrapolate i remember without making this too long my dad had to go to a course before we went to before he went to vietnam so we drove down from outside washington dc through Chattanooga tennessee where my mother had uh, grown up, down to Fort Benning, Georgia, so my dad could go to this course. Hmm. And en route, my mother has an appendicitis. Hmm. So we've got this station wagon, a Chevrolet Bel Air station wagon, two parents, six kids put in there, two of them very young. One of them is a baby. And before we arrive at Chattanooga, my mother has an appendicitis, appendicitis, has to immediately be put in the hospital. All the kids are then farmed out for the next three weeks to relatives. So my dad could go to the course and my mom could convalesce. And then we came back together and I remember I dreaded my father leaving almost like it was the end of the world. Mm -hmm. So much so that one night I was staying at some relative's house and my parents were uh, a few blocks away at another relative's house. And I got up in the middle of the night, left the room I was, left the house and walked those blocks to my, the other relative's house, because I knew my father was about to leave and I was just desperate for him not to leave without me Mm. seeing him, spending as much time as I could with him. And then the entire time he was gone, I remember literally every day thinking if I could have one wish granted in life, it would be my dad to come home. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's funny because there were six kids. It wasn't like, He was my best friend, and we hung out together all the time. But there was something in my life about it, and I remember my mom. She was a really strong lady uh, as a person, but that's tough. That's tough going, Mm -hmm. and to to keep six kids together, to worry about your husband in combat, all of that at the same time is uh, is a tall order. Nowadays, when I see young wives, because my mom was. 40 years old when that happened.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, now I see young soldiers with a spouse who is 19 and her husband or, or wife is gone. I just, you know, I'm sort of amazed by what they're
0: able to do, how they hold it together. In later years, did you ever talk to your dad uh, about that? The impact he had on, on you specifically during those times you were gone, he was gone?
1: Yeah, very much so. Um, And I remember talking about my dad, you know, how he thought about it. Because near the end of his year, his first year in Vietnam, he he had been a battalion commander. They made him a temporary brigade commander, the next level up. And uh, he did it for about three weeks. And then he came home. And at the time, I didn't think much about it. But what had happened was General DePew, his division commander, had made him a brigade commander and asked him to extend for another six months or a year. Hmm. And, um, you know, for his career, that would have been amazing. That would have been literally the best thing he could possibly do. Hmm. And yet my dad, I asked my dad, well, why didn't you do it? And he said, cause I had a wife and six kids back here. You know, sure. this is where my responsibility lay. And he made a very conscious career trade-off during that period, and that was, uh, that was instructive.
0: The other day, I turned on this old digital video camera. I hit play, and after a few seconds, I knew it was it. It was what i have been trying to find. It was old footage of my grandmother and grandfather. From about 20 years ago, my guess is I was, I don't know, 12 years old. I had interviewed both of them just to, I don't know, maybe show my kids one day, just to have. But then I came upon another tape, which I didn't even know existed. I didn't remember it anyway. My grandparents were in their small car driving. I was in the front seat next to granddad, Nana in the back. I must have been staying the weekend with them, I'm not really sure. But because I filmed everything since I was a young kid, I was doing exactly that, filming the three of us in the car. Nan is still alive, doing quite well, but Granddad passed away about 10 years ago. He was always a hero of mine. He was an inventor. He invented the modern day fluorescent light bulb. He invented uh, Indiglow on your watch. He was endlessly curious and incredibly humble. He worked for GE. So whether he came up with a billion dollar invention, which I'm pretty sure he did or nothing, he was always making your average salary and lived the life. He'd always dreamed of in Schenectady, New York. Now, Nana is quite the talker. So during most of this car ride, she was talking and talking, God love her. But my camera was on Granddad. I was filming him just driving. But Granddad was talking in his own way. He was driving by certain places. And I was realizing this while watching. Without telling me, he was letting me know what to film. Rather than going straight to their house, we stopped by this big brick wall near the school my mom went to, where he would endlessly practice his tennis shot. He was big on practice, always practicing, trying to perfectly put the tennis ball in this square box he had set up with masking tape. For years, hours on end, he would do this. I got a good shot of it. Then he passed by this ice cream place that he and I like to go to. Get a shot of that, he was saying without having to say a word. While Nana was talking, I kept the camera on Granddad and where he was kind of quietly taking us. Because of Legacy Box, I had the rare opportunity to watch this the other night. This home video from 20 years ago, I'll be able to show to Nana, who I know will love every second of it. And that's what home videos do. They put you in that time and place and capture moments that our memory doesn't necessarily recall. If I had a journal from that day, I wouldn't have written about this car ride. This isn't a story I've told through the years. I didn't even remember it. Home videos capture... Not just the moments we forget, but the essence of those moments. Legacy Box is a chance to save your family films and photos from being lost forever. If you aren't able to play recordings from a VHS tape or anything along those lines, this is a chance to bring lost memories back to life. You send your Legacy Box filled with old home movies and pictures, and they'll do the rest, professionally digitizing your moments onto a thumb drive or digital download, DVD, whatever works there's never been a better time to digitally preserve your memories visit legacybox.com today to get started plus for a limited time they're offering my listeners an exclusive discount go to legacybox.com/wrh to get 40% off your first order go to legacybox.com/wrh and save forty percent today. Get started preserving your past, General. Uh, you know, and, and one thing that, that please call me Stan. Oh, okay, we'll do. Um, call me. Call me my friends. Call me Jenks, which is my last name. So, Call, call me Jenks. Um, so, uh, Stan, I I did a, uh, I did a documentary a while back now on. Remember uh, Bobby Valentine, the baseball manager of course. So he was in Japan. I don't know if you, you know this. He was in, he, after coaching the Mets, he went to Japan, coached a team there. And as you probably know, baseball is the number one sport in Japan and his team won the Japan series. And so he was the first American to ever uh, manage a team that won to the Japan series. And he in turn became a demigod. There's a beer named after him, a burger named after him, there's streets named after him, shrines, literally. Uh, and I don't know about literally, well, there, there you yeah. Anyway, until I lived there for nine months with him and filmed, I realized that he didn't become a demigod just because he won a Japan series, but because the moment he arrived there, he studied the language. He ate the food. He made sure to let everyone know from a very sincere place that he respected the culture and wanted to understand it. What kind of role does that play in your line of work, particularly during your time in um, Afghanistan and Iraq? Yeah,
1: much more than we have actually let it. Um, I think of what Douglas MacArthur did when he got to Japan in 1945. Now, he didn't learn the language. He didn't become close to the Japanese culture. But what he did was he played a part. You know, this was when the the, uh, emperor was stepping down and Douglas MacArthur played the part almost as a surrogate emperor figure. And yet he instituted a lot of good reforms for the Japanese people. So they they really respected him.
0: Hmm.
1: Now, what I found when we went to Iraq and Afghanistan is, although Americans are big hearted and well-intentioned, we don't learn the language often. Mm. We have this tendency to keep at arm's length from the culture mm. and to not make the kind of efforts and not be as curious as, as we talked about earlier as we ought to be. And so as a consequence, the, the people we're trying to deal with, they sense that.
0: Mm.
1: You know, if you're if you're not willing to try to empathize, and what I mean by that is try to Put yourself on the other side of the table and see how they see things. Then people know that no matter what you may be doing for their country, you're not really respecting them to the degree. And if you've ever been in a a conversation or a relationship with someone and you either sense or know that they don't really respect you. I I don't know about you, but I automatically resent it. Mm, I, I automatically don't like them in return.
0: Right, right. Um, That's so. I think it's just incredibly important. One uh, interesting, uh, really surprising uh, fact that I that I've learned is on a from an episode that, that we worked on earlier in the in our season. It was about uh, General Custer and uh, and this Native American uh, Buffalo Calf Road Woman. Who uh, may have been there at, at Custer's last stand and, and played a role in, in him dying? And I, what I what I didn't know was the rate at which Native Americans uh, serve in the military. And from what I understand, and and, and I've I've fact checked this, but you would know better than I. From what I understand, uh, now and historically speaking, Native Americans proportionally um, sign up for the military at a higher rate than. Uh, anyone else? And I, I was wondering what what you make of that, and if if uh, yeah, I, I guess I'm I'm trying to complicate this. Yeah, what what do you make of that?
1: Yeah, and and I don't have the numbers, so I can't confirm or deny that. But my sense is you, that's absolutely true. If when I think of that, I think of responsibility. You know, the Native Americans were a tribal society, and when a tribe went to war, there wasn't a chief in the way we think of it. You know, you didn't have an autocratic chief who told everybody what to do. In fact, there was an awful lot of individual decision-making, but also a sense of individual or of collective responsibility. So I think what you're seeing is as Native Americans think of themselves, not as natives, but, of a, but as Americans, and when they see America has a requirement, there, there's just this natural, reflexive reaction of, of course, we have this threat or we have this requirement, so they are going to step up and and do it. And the the Native Americans that I've served with, I remember our Operation Sergeant Major in the Ranger Regiment was uh, Lakota Sioux, and mm. just amazing guy. Mm. But, but I think they bring a set of values that would be really positive in American society at large. You know, if if America thought of itself not as a set of tribes, but as one big tribe, and America thought of itself with a collective responsibility for each other, hmm. then I think that kind of reflexive standing up, not maybe not just for military service, but for other things, would be even more common than it is.
0: Stan, I know uh, a lot of people uh are talking these days and it's almost a buzzword, which is storytelling and the value of of uh, making a point and giving information vis-a-vis a story. in kind of the world you live in and especially as it pertains to the military uh, is is that as effective as, sort of lining up the, the facts of, of the situation. Um, I don't know if I asked that exactly how I was, I was thinking, but let me ask, is storytelling something that, that you focus on when trying to make a point?
1: I, I do, and I do it more every year of my life because I realize that's the way I receive ideas. Yeah. If you think about our history
0: I'm glad you said that, Stan, because I thought my question was terrible and you totally picked me up on that. So I take, thank you.
1: (laughs) It It was perfect, James. I mean, because think about it, what motivates us? We hear the story of Valley Forge. We hear the story of the Alamo. We hear the story of Susan B. Anthony. And, you know, it's one thing if somebody gives you the numbers and they say this was the voting numbers, this was the this. Okay, that's all important data, but the real story that resonates to people has to be something we can get our arms around. Hmm. We've got to be able to to make it understandable enough and digestible enough that then there's a point to it and we can draw a conclusion. Now, the danger of this is mythology. Hmm. The danger is that our stories become divergent from fact to the point where we start to believe mythology and we simplify things to the point mm. where we say, this is why this is. But, but what do we remember? We remember the stories. Mm. We remember the personalities of the stories. And, and so I think what we've got to do in, in our society and in America today is we've got to decide the stories that define us. And we've got to make sure we share common stories. We've got to make sure that we have a set, a common set of stories that we all can go back to as sort of a, a a mooring point for our values.
0: That's such a, such a great way to put it, Stan. I mean, I mean, kind of along those lines, something that I think a lot about is elementary, middle and, and high school and, uh, how, it, how it feels, and this this to be clear is an opinion, that education these days, especially at those ages, is still based on this kind of Judeo-Christian, you know, British, old, old, old way of teaching. And, you know, I, I read about how you were in school reading books in the library opposed to doing math, um, which, which, yeah. I, which I can relate to. But these days, information is everywhere. And a lot of ways, what's going on in the last couple of years here, I think maybe in, in history we'll we'll see, isn't that surprising? Because, you know, for a decade or so, we were we were trying to understand all this information. We thought it was really interesting, and then slowly it was being manipulated, and we've never just experienced having so much. And for me, again, just an opinion, uh, I would think, and I don't think it's happening schools should be teaching, if nothing else, uh, maybe other than, you know, I'd put history first, but uh, how to digest information, how to process information, and then how to go about talking about information. I mean, I, I think they could spend all of middle and high school just doing that. And, and that's, that's the first step. How do you think information and in the world that we live in today should be taught to younger people? And I'm talking pre-college. Yeah,
1: there are certain obvious skills you have to teach them. You know, basic math and writing and
0: yeah, and I, yeah. Sorry, I don't mean to suggest that obviously those are uh, <laughs> integral. Yeah. But sorry, Stan, go ahead.
1: But 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 you're right, Jake. I think you have to have a narrative, or a, there's got to be something that pulls things together. You know, because that's the way our minds work. We wrote this book, Leaders, over the last year and a half, and we wanted to write a book about leadership. And we wanted to, to get into some serious concepts. But to do it, we told the story of 13 leaders, because that's the way all of us could think. That's mm. the way we process. Then we've got to, to sort of be honest about that those stories are never exactly accurate. Um, you know, just a short story. I, we yeah. were doing a big operation in Afghanistan. And uh, when I was commanding our special operations forces and we had a very senior officer, we had to brief to get his approval. And so we would give these normal military briefings to him. And he was sort of a a curmudgeonly like older guy (laughs) and we just couldn't connect with him. And then I had one of my officers, a SEAL, senior SEAL, who he went to brief his part and he basically started, he goes, sir, let me tell you a story. And it was almost like he began with, it's a dark and stormy night. Hmm. And he told a story with a voice and the the, move in his hands. And he told how the battle was going to go, or we were proposing that we were going to do this. And the senior officer resonated so well with that, that suddenly we get approval for the operation. And it was funny because then the next two times we had to get approval we had that same guy brief and he would use the same technique. Mm. But but it was it was instructive to me because that is what I listen to if if somebody is giving me a bunch of facts and then they suddenly say well, let me tell you how this connects and this is happening and it's a it's a narrative then suddenly my mind grabs it.
0: Mm.
1: And so I think that We need to teach people to communicate that way. But as you said, we also need to teach people to put a filter on because a really good storyteller can tell a story that takes you way off course. And, And if they tell the story with enough enthusiasm and they repeat it enough and it's got
0: just enough
1: of what you want to believe, the danger is we then believe that, which is unbelievable.
0: Right, exactly So we'll, so we'll put... Imagine a case like this: a double murder trial, a high-profile media circus, a famous celebrity accused of the crime. And then a not guilty verdict. Now imagine, eight years later, what happens when there's a new murder with the same celebrity suspect and a second chance? To get justice? Did he do it again? And this time, can she prove it? From the mind of executive producer Marsha Clark comes a new murder mystery only she could tell. It's about what goes on outside the court and beyond the TV cameras. It's about the battle fought in the public eye and what really goes on behind the scenes. And no one knows that better than Marsha Clark. By the end of the 10 episodes, you'll know the truth. But they'll keep you guessing until the very last minute. The Fix, a 10-episode event premiering Monday, March 18th on ABC. If I don't say so myself, Stan, you're a pretty funny guy. How, how, do, you, how do you go about using humor in, in tough situations and finding that right balance?
1: Yeah, that's. I mean, I try to, and I also love to be around people who do that. First thing is, intense situation it can it can cut down the tension right away. You're scared, you're worried, and the person with the the uh, the frame of mind and the presence of mind to tell a joke can can make everybody suddenly feel better. Um, I also think that it it allows you to become more human, and you become in the military, and as you go up in rank you wear your rank on your clothing. I mean, everybody sees your rank right. before they see you. Right. And, so they, and so sometimes the ability to tell self-deprecating jokes when you're very senior and that sort of thing, <laughs> it suddenly reminds them that, you know, under those clothes, you're naked just like they are. Hmm. Um, and it creates some kind of connection with people that is necessary for real communication, now, the problem with different cultures is a lot of uh, humor is very culture-oriented. All right. So you have to be able to find things that can cross over ages or, or backgrounds or religions that are still funny to everybody.
0: Hmm. So you've got you to have a few go-tos, a few, yeah, exactly. a few broad go-tos. <laughs> exactly. On the other end of the spectrum, and I, I know we're, we're uh, we only got a few minutes here, and I'm incredibly great gracious of your time. Um, this this may be too personal, but we talk a lot, and we've talked about on this show uh, PTSD, uh, returning soldiers. I think one very tangible way for for people to to relate to what uh, that even means is, and it, it may sound cliche, but our, our nightmares. And I'm curious if 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 you have nightmares that are are, that you could speak to and are a result of all of your experiences. Yeah. Um, I I do. I don't know that they're that I can attribute them to war. Um, And you know what? Let me, sorry, Stan, let me take that back. I mean, they don't don't have to attribute, maybe we don't need to attribute them to war.
1: Yeah, no, I, I I think a lot of people do. I have, and I talked to my wife about this. I have this recurring dream where, I am involved in something, and I haven't done the preparation or the work. Sometimes I'm in a course in like a college or something, and I'm three quarters of the way through the year. I haven't done any of the papers. I haven't taken the tests, <laughs> And I suddenly realize I just haven't done what I was supposed to do. And therefore, I'm in a position where it's impossible for me to to do what I have to do. And I feel extraordinarily helpless. And then Another one I have is I've got to do something, and it's usually something physical. I've got to walk a distance or climb something, and I cannot control my body to get it to do. Either my body is moving in slow motion, or I'm lying there, and I can't move my extremities. Hmm. And I'm literally, you know, I have this incredible will to do something and no capability to get it done. Uh, I'm not sure where they come from. They come often enough that I'm starting to wonder if, you know, there's not some reason to it. When it happens, I wake up and I'm I'm bothered. Hmm. Uh, I'm not frightened. I'm bothered. And I try to think if there's something in my life that has triggered it. And uh, sometimes I, I think there is. Sometimes I think
0: there isn't. Obviously, it's guessing, but what are some of... When when opining, I suppose what what has come to mind? Yeah,
1: um, there are things that that come out of your control sometimes, and, and I'm guessing that in both of these cases, sort of the the, uh, uh, the common factor is I'm at a point where suddenly I'm helpless. I'm unable to, to get the work done because I'm so far behind, or so or I'm, I'm physically unable to do something. And I've been in places before, if places in my career when my military career ended or, or where decisions were going, where I had no ability to influence the outcome. And yet I was going to be impacted a lot by the outcome. And I think about, you know, how anybody who's in life who loses the ability, the agency to, to take care of themselves or to do those things that they feel like they ought to do. Just what that sense of helplessness feels like. Hmm. And that's pretty frightening. You know, I think about what it would like to be suddenly out of work, Hmm. or to be suddenly, and I couldn't take care of my family, or suddenly physically debilitated, and I couldn't do something. Or, you know, you name it. We, We all have these responsibilities or expectations we put on ourselves vis-a-vis our responsibility to others or to our nation or just very basic. And when you can't do those, you know, how do you feel? And then, you know, in my more thoughtful moments, I extrapolate that to others. Mm. And I say, people who have not been as fortunate as I am suddenly find themselves in a position for which they had no responsibility. It's just they are there. They are homeless. They are, you name it, and they can't do anything about it, and and just that's to me maybe the most frightening feeling of all.
0: That was so fascinating. My last question here: What component of your life uh, do you think is is most unexpected or people find find surprising when? you know, I don't know, you're at dinner with some folks or or you're you're talking to a group of people that they always seem most surprised by? Yeah, that's
1: an interesting question. You know, people always, you know, I've got these two granddaughters that live next door to me. And uh, they're four and two, and they're kind of center of my life. I never saw that coming. I mean, I had a son. I love my son. I'm very close to him. But I'm really... Entranced by my granddaughters and being around them, and and I I sort of didn't see that coming. And people say, you know, hard-bitten old soldier.
0: Hmm.
1: I don't think it's that uncommon to have that feeling. I think the thing that that people sometimes remark on is I'm a little bit more progressive in my thinking, hmm. you know, both politically and socially than than people expect that I am. I see. Um, I, I I think I always have been. But people tend to think, you know, retired general, you know, going to be somewhere to the right of Genghis Khan. And, <laughs> you know? and, and people come to me all the time and they just say that. And I say, no, actually, right. I think this about that. And they go, really? Right. And I don't know if they're impressed or disgusted, but it kind of on <laughs> the background.
0: Well, you're a registered Democrat, right? I mean, that's not, that's public information, right? Or no, my...
1: Well, I mean, I'm registered as an independent, but, uh, you know, no. I, I lean... You know, I've been leaning to the democratic side of my whole life.
0: Well, Stan, it's hard to articulate, but, but thank you so much for your service. Uh, really am uh, incredibly grateful, if nothing else, for, for your time here today.
1: Well, I appreciate your time, Jinx, and, and
0: the thoughtful conversation. I enjoyed it tremendously. All right. Well, thanks again, and, uh, and have a great day. You too. So that is it for this week's episode. Next week, we have Suki Kim who wrote an incredible book about being undercover in North Korea. If you like the show, please rate and review on Apple podcasts. If you don't like the show, totally, totally don't have to. Uh, Or you can reach me on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook at Andrew Jenks.